you still have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Matthew 3. When you get to Matthew chapter 3, hold your spot there, and I want you to go back and find the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 40. So we're starting in Isaiah 40, then we'll move to Matthew chapter 3. Before I read this part, which is, includes a verse that's quoted in all four Gospels about John the Baptist, a voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord, a quick word about what Isaiah is talking about. Um, in, in recent years, Isaiah chapters 40 to 66 in particular have been chapters that I just keep going back to, trying to understand them better than I do. And really, just to give you the quick context, Isaiah is writing his prophecy over 700 years before Jesus is born, and the Lord is giving him a vision of hundreds of years into the future of the Babylonian captivity, where Babylon destroys Jerusalem and takes many thousands away to Babylon. And Isaiah is even seeing past that to the return from exile. And here's what Isaiah sheds some light on. The return from exile, the return from being estranged in a foreign land, is going to happen for God's people in two stages, led by two deliverers. One deliverer is the pagan king Cyrus, whom the Lord will use providentially to bring the people of God physically back to Israel about 70 years after they are removed from their land. But there's a second stage to the return from exile that sometimes we don't tend to think of as clearly. This is the suffering servant. This is the anointed one, the true Israel of God who is coming in the future, Jesus, who is going to fully bring us out of exile. That is out of estrangement with God, to fully atone for our sins and to bring us home to a right relationship with God. The beginning of the return happened before Jesus was born. Israel largely came back to the land. But the spiritual forgiveness of sins and the suffering servant had not happened yet. That would happen at the time of Christ and through Jesus Himself. So let me read the first 11 verses of Isaiah chapter 40. God's Word says the following, "'Comfort, comfort my people,' says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins.' A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So again, this is God's Word. Remember, the initial stage of return already happened. Happened 500 years before Jesus. 
But had the Lord come in fullness like this passage predicts? Not yet. Had the suffering servant come? Not yet. And that's what John is now going to be proclaiming as we turn to chapter 3, where that passage in Isaiah is referenced. So Matthew chapter 3, my plan is to cover the first 12 verses of this chapter. We just barely got started on this last Sunday. I'll go ahead and tell you that the, the sermon today is going to be, I think, a challenge to all of us. Uh, we are going to deal with some pretty intense passages of Scripture. And we are going to be talking today about, I'm just going to tell you right now, false conversion. What is real conversion? We're also going to talk, because John does, I've got to be faithful to the text. We're going to talk about God's wrath and His judgment against sinners like you and me. And I want you to be prepared for that. As we walk through this, we're going to do a good Bible study today. We've got a lot of things to look at. The sermon is titled, Repentance versus Presumption. Repentance versus Presumption. And I have three very simple points. Verses 1 through 6 is going to be the first point. This is John's baptism. Then verses 7 through 10 is John's warning. And then verses 11 and 12 is John's superior. John's baptism, John's warning, and John's superior. I'll begin with point one, which is the first six verses, John's baptism that we touched on briefly last Sunday. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I mentioned last week, it is actually pretty rare in the Bible that we get a description of the clothing or the attire of a character in Scripture. We, we, we rarely get a glimpse of even Jesus' appearance in those kinds of ways. But John the Baptist is described wearing a garment of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. We're even told his diet. We don't get a lot of the diet details of a lot of characters in the Bible. Why are these details presented to us? Well, as I said, in 2 Kings 1, we are told that Elijah the Tishbite, the prophet Elijah, wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. And the Old Testament ends with Malachi saying, the Lord says, I'm going to send a messenger ahead of me to prepare my way, and then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. There's a warning at the end of Malachi, but some of you may not be ready for the Lord to come when He does come. Let me, let me just pause in my midpoint here. Israel was saying, we want the Lord to come back to His temple. We want the Lord to come back. And the message of Malachi says, I am coming back, but you need to be careful what you are wishing for. Because if you are not in a state of repentance and trust in me when the Lord does come, it will not be a happy occasion for you. It will be a time where it speaks of fire at the end of Malachi coming in judgment for those who are not prepared and repentant. This is why John the Baptist was predicted by Malachi to make the, the path straight. In other words, to get hearts ready for the coming of the Lord. Our hearts must be ready. If we meet the Lord and our heart is not prepared to meet Him, if I am in unrepentant and sin and unbelief, when I meet the Lord, that, that, is, uh, that would be the worst thing that could happen to me would be to meet Jesus 
in a state of unrepentant sin and rebellion. That, that, that would be the worst thing. And so Malachi knows that, Isaiah knows that, John the Baptist knows that we've got to get things ready. The people need a warning before the Lord comes. They need time to repent and ready themselves for the coming of the Lord. And this happens in the wilderness. John is acting much like Elijah the prophet in this moment. What's happening here is also a new exodus. I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that John was baptizing in the Jordan in fulfillment of… Okay, just follow me for a second. This is new to you. Isaiah 40 to 66 is predicting a new exodus that's going to take place. It's going to be so great, as many prophets say, we're almost going to be tempted to forget about the original exodus out of Egypt because this new exodus is going to be so superior to that former exodus. And exodus language is used in Isaiah to describe the return of the exiles back home, much like the parting of the Red Sea and the, the, the Israelites coming back home from exile. Well, this new exodus, think about this. The old exodus started in Egypt. They spent 40 years, 42 years wandering the wilderness, and then where do they end up? They end up when Moses dies, Joshua takes over, where are they? They're at what river? The Jordan River. Sound familiar? And what are they about to do? They're about to walk through the Jordan. Remember the Lord drives up the Jordan and they walk through the Jordan on dry ground where they hold the ark in the middle of the stream, and the people go in and they go, they go battle Jericho, the walls of Jericho, and then Ai, and on it goes. In other words, I think that John has Exodus symbolism even in where he is and what he's doing. He is standing at the very river they crossed over to enter the promised land in the first place. And he's saying, guys, the state of Israel is not good right now. We're, there is so much lostness and rebellion and apostasy. And in order for us to become the people of God as we need to be, we need to be recreated all over again. We, we need a new exodus. We need ourselves to be committed to the Lord through repentance and trust in Him. And the people come to the Jordan. And this is amazing. John is not exactly an attractive guy, okay? He is not the guy that you want to put up on the poster board. Hold, hold your spot here and turn to Matthew 11 just for a moment to listen to what Jesus says about uh, John the Baptist. Matthew 11, a little bit later in the story, here's what Jesus says about John. Not exactly a guy who you think would be attractive to crowds, but yet crowds came anyway. Matthew 11, verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? I'll just stop there. A reed shaken by the wind is a way of saying someone who just goes with popular opinion. Wherever the wind is blowing, the reed leans. John is not a guy who just tells you what you want to hear. If you wanted to find that, you could go find that in a king's palace. You could find someone who is compromised, I'm sure there is what Jesus is going to say. But John is not blown around by human opinion. John does not care, frankly, about human opinion. He cares about speaking the truth, no matter what the consequences are. He's not a reed blown or shaken by the wind. Verse 8, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, now he quotes Malachi 3, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So we can turn back to chapter 3. What we see here is John was doing what God had called him to do, and he was leading people in baptism. Now, this is important. 
John's baptism is not identical to Christian baptism. If you remember in the book of Acts chapter 19, Paul runs across about a dozen people who were, who were disciples of John the Baptist years earlier. They had been baptized in John's baptism, but they did not yet know the gospel fully. And when they repented and trusted in Christ, what did Paul do? He had them baptized with Christian baptism. So, in other words, uh, John's baptism is not identical with Christian baptism, but it is similar in several ways. Here's one reason perhaps why John was baptizing. And this would have been scandalous. It's hard to pin this down with certainty, but I think this is likely on the, on the right thought here. Jewish people might do ceremonial washings at different times, but Jewish people would not be baptized in the way we think of, because they thought the people who need to be baptized are not Jews, they're who? Gentiles. If a Gentile wants to become one of us, then one of the first things they do when they commit to following the Torah is they need to be baptized by immersion, and they would come out of the baptism, and they would be part of God's true people if they were going to be faithful to God's Word. But to have a Jew be baptized like a Gentile was absolutely scandalous. John, what are you saying about the people of God? What are you saying about Israel? Why do they have to undergo baptism in order to be right with God? And John is saying, listen, don't you bank on your pedigree or your ethnicity or your religious background when it comes to this. You personally have to have a conversion experience. You personally must turn from sin and trust in Christ. And the waters of baptism no doubt represented the cleansing of sin, the sin being washed away from the individual who was baptized. Now, it had been over four centuries since a prophet had been on the scene. So, Malachi has been gone for over 400 years. He's the first prophet in 400 years. This is probably part of the reason why the crowds were coming. They were ready for Messiah to appear at any moment. Luke tells us they were in expectation of the kingdom coming and the Messiah appearing. Of course, their notions of Messiah and kingdom were not quite biblically accurate, but they still were in expectation. And so, people flooded out to see this strange figure, John the Baptist, who ate whatever was available to him out in the desert the locusts and the wild honey. But they were confessing their sins when they went to see John. Okay, that's point number one. That's John's baptism. Let's go to point number two, verses 10 through 12, and we'll spend a significant amount of time on this point. This is John's warning. This is where the title of the sermon comes from, Don't Presume But Repent. Don't presume, but repent. Let me read, I'm going to read these verses more than once, I think, but let me read verses 7 through 10 so we have it clearly in our mind. But when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I just tell you, I, I'm stunned every time I look at this because John the Baptist does not follow any of the rules of polite society. Can you imagine this guy? I heard one preacher say, uh, imagine if John the Baptist was the greeter at your church. He's standing outside, 
gaunt and frail because he's just eating grasshoppers. He's got this, you know, he's got this strange clothing on the camel's hair. He's got this leather belt around his waist. He's probably looking quite unusual compared to most people. And when you walk up to him, you say, hey, how are you doing? Uh, how are you doing, John? Good to see you. And he just looks at you. And he says, how's repentance going in your life? Uh, you need to repent. And, and this word repent, my goodness, it, it, is, it is as unpopular a word as any word in the Bible. I mean, I think that repentance and hell itself are probably two of the most inflammatory, undesirable words. And um, yet John was speaking what we need to hear. I mean, sincerely, John, when he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to, to his baptism, he, they probably were actually coming, perhaps, to be baptized. It looks like they didn't actually go through with it after he says some things to them, but it sounds like they were coming to be baptized. And John begins with holy sarcasm in front of everybody. You're a bunch of snakes. What are you coming out here? Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? That's John's seeker-sensitive, totally polite response to the religious authorities. I mean, this is astonishing stuff. I mean, seriously, I do think that we as Christians have imbibed some sense of sort of Victorian niceties as being the ultimate standard of Christian morality. We think that if something is not nice, it's not Jesus-like. John wasn't particularly nice, yet he was incredibly Christ-like because Jesus said, the greatest man who's ever been born before me is this guy. And he's actually known for his humility, especially in John chapters 1 and 3. John the Baptist is an incredibly humble man, truly. He says, let Jesus increase and let me decrease. And yet John is not afraid to say very strong, even sarcastic words to religious authorities in public, in front of crowds of people. We, we need to adjust here. Now listen, let me just say, John the Baptist would not speak this way to the woman at the well. Okay? Because a broken sinner who is in his or her sin, who needs grace and help, we don't need to be using this kind of language with someone who's in a broken state, who is a refugee coming out of a very messed up situation. In those places, it is the tenderness of Christ that we see. It is the compassion of Christ. It's the prodigal's father running from the front door of his house, embarrassing himself as he runs as an adult man in that society to embrace his son covered in the, 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 the pig uh, food that was all over his clothes, to wrap around him, kiss him, hug him, give him his best clothes and say, listen, son, you can stop with your apology. We're about to have a party for you. That is the tenderness and the forgiveness of God. Those who are broken coming out of sin and are broken by sin, and repentant about it. They need nothing but compassion and tenderness and kindness. But those who are promoting and preaching unbiblical teaching at times need to be dealt with in very direct and at times ways that are not considered nice by our cultural standards. And yet John is not afraid to say, listen, you're a brood of vipers. What does that mean? He means you're descendants of your father, the devil. Genesis 3, there will be a war between Eve's children and Satan's children, right? There's going to be a battle between the offspring of the serpent. Well, the offspring of the serpent are right here. The religious leaders at the time were the brood of vipers. They were the offspring of serpents. They were acting like their father, the devil. Does it remind you of Jesus in John 8, talking to the same people? Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. How do I know that? Jesus says, because your will is to do his will. You have been lying about me since I got here, and he's the father of lies. He only lies when he speaks, and when he speaks lies, he speaks his very native language. So clearly, these Pharisees and Sadducees are being rebuked publicly by John the Baptist. 
Now, what does this have to do precisely with us today? Well, these Pharisees and Sadducees were guilty of a sin that is, I think, pervasive in the South in our country. It is the sin of spiritual presumption. Look with me at verse 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, pause here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were not merely legalists. Of course, they were legalistic, but they actually, it was more than just their good deeds. They also kept stock in their ethnicity and religious heritage. They said, listen, we are physical descendants of Father Abraham. We're Abraham's children. And there was actually Jewish teaching, you can look this up from among the rabbis that wrote this down a few centuries after Jesus uh, in the different writings that they have. They actually have teaching that says this, Father Abraham stands at the door of hell, and when a Jewish person stumbles down there and is making their way towards hell, Father Abraham will stop every Jew and say, you are my son, you are my daughter, turn around, this is no place for you. There's this idea that Jewish people almost could not be lost Uh, There's an intertestamental book called The Wisdom of Solomon that speaks of the Jewish people, and they basically say this, those Gentiles are really going to get it from God one day, but we are so thankful because we are of the Jewish people, and we know that the Lord deals mercifully with us, but more severely with them. Now, the problem was here, a kind of presumption. They thought that because of something other than their repentance, that they were safe with God. They were in good standing with God. Turn with me to your, to your right, to Romans chapter 2, just past the book of Acts, Romans chapter 2, and listen to another passage dealing with spiritual presumption. Romans 2 verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, listen to this. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see here a sin of presumption. So often, we are tempted to mistake God's patience for indifference. Do you understand what I mean? So because God has not judged me yet for what I have done, God must not actually be that concerned with the sin in my life. He's endured me for decades and hasn't done anything to me. So we assume that God's patience is indifference, it's apathy, but yet it is not. God's kindness and patience are God's very willingness to hold on and let us have time to find salvation and to repent and to come to know Him in a saving way. So let's turn back to Matthew 3.
It is interesting that in the South, you know, you, you could talk about different people's error with the sin of presumption. You could pick different uh, groups and how they presume. But l- let's just pick on ourselves here. Evangelicals in the South, in the, in the Bible Belt, over the last 50 or 100 years, uh, my goodness, I think that the sin of presumption is rampant in our culture. It doesn't look like the Pharisees exactly. We don't tend to take stock in our heritage, although some may. You, you may say, well, my parents were missionaries, and my father was a pastor, and so-and-so, so-and-so. I have all these relatives who were faithful to God, so therefore I know that I am a, I, I'm a believer. I'm, I'm right with God. Most of us, though, don't fall for that. Some people might say, well, hey, I was once a deacon at a church. I met a guy who I worked with who was in no, by no means walking with the Lord at all. I won't even go into it, but he was not a believer in any stretch. Yet he said he was the youngest deacon ever appointed at his church when he was younger. And he said, I know I'm a believer because I was a deacon one time or whatever it may be. So some people, Jerry Edgar knows a story of a guy who has that story. Walked away from the Lord as an adult, but literally said because he had an office in the church at one point when he was young, therefore he knows that he's right with God and everything's going to be fine one day despite how he lived for the last 30 years of his life. Now, again, these are less common, but those who happen. Let me tell you the, the form of presumption that I think is easily the most common in the Bible Belt. This is the most common form of presumption. It is this. I once prayed a prayer where I said, I'm a sinner. I deserve judgment. Jesus died for me. Jesus, please save me. Please come into my heart. And after praying that, we had a youth pastor sit down with us and assure us that we should never doubt for the rest of our life that we are truly converted people. Baptized soon after, how many, I mean, I know a lot of your conversion stories. How many of you, and for me too, how many of us was, was the case, thought I was converted at 5, 8, 10, 12, and some of us truly were converted at those ages. Mr. Edgar, Jerry Edgar was converted at age 5 or 6, so certainly that's possible. But for many of us, we had a childhood pray-the-prayer conversion, we were baptized, we were, you know, part of the church for years, and then when we were... 13 or 16 or 20 or 30, suddenly there was a wake-up moment. We realized, I don't think that was real. I don't think I've actually been walking with the Lord in any sense over the last years. I'm frankly bored with Him. I'm bored with the Bible. I'm bored with the gospel. I'm, I had a guy in Bible college tell me this in a dorm room. He said, if I hear someone tell me, Jesus died on the cross for my sins one more time, I'm going to go insane. He's training for some kind of ministry, I assume. I mean, he's in Bible college. That's what he told me in a dorm room one day. I thought, this is not a sign of health, if that is what you are saying. So, here's here's what I think often happens. We have been taught poorly, many of us growing up, about what conversion is. We then were, many of us experienced a conversion, so-called, that did not actually change our heart and life. I know John MacArthur will say, it's a change, it's not perfection, Conversion is not perfection. It's a change of direction that comes from a change of affection. I think that's really well said. It's not perfection. It's a change of direction in your life that comes from a change of affection for Christ that, that, that is where it all starts and where it all begins. It is so easy for Bible Belt people to grow up and say, well, I prayed to receive Christ. I believe once saved, always saved is true. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I really live. I cannot go to church for a decade. I cannot read my Bible months on end. I can be completely unmoved by the gospel for weeks and months and even years at a time. But I know that I'm a Christian because I received Christ on this date and once saved, always saved. Everything's fine. And listen, I do believe once saved, always saved is strictly true doctrinally, but I think it is normally misleading when it is used. Because I would prefer to say this, if I am truly converted, that change that takes place never fades away. We might have ups and downs, but the change that takes place at conversion is a permanent change of nature. 
It is a permanent change of nature. Just like, you know, cats are naturally clean by nature and you can dirty up a cat, but a cat will clean itself back off because its nature is to be clean or a pig. As Second Peter uses this illustration in Second Peter chapter 2, a pig's nature is to be dirty and you can make it clean all nice and squeaky clean, but within about five minutes, the nature of the pig is going to win because it's going to be where? Back in the mud puddle again, right? So what we're talking about is a change of nature which is shown by repentance and a change of life. And if someone says, listen, I received Christ, I'm baptized, I follow Him, I love Him, but I'm not really following Him on a day-to-day basis, I don't really, you know, He's not a big deal to me, I'm not really dealing with my sin, some serious questions begin, need to begin to be uh, asked about that particular individual. Let me just read you a couple, you don't have to turn to these. All right, are you, are you ready? Just, these are going to be very intense passages, are you ready? So I'm going to give you a few very intense texts. These are written to churches. Don't forget that, okay? Ephesians, Galatians, 1 Corinthians. Just listen to these real quick. Ephesians 5. Listen to Paul's words. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, listen, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Listen to Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now now listen... Galatians is the ultimate grace letter, isn't it? It's all about grace and freedom in Christ. And listen to what Paul says in that letter about those actions. He says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If, if my lifestyle or your lifestyle is characterized by the sins on these lists, No matter what my past experience is or what I claim to have experienced in the past, if my life is characterized by these sins without repentance, I am not a true Christian. And I I have false assurance of salvation if that were true. Listen to another one, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he has to add the words, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you hear what Paul is saying? The way that I know that my repentance is genuine, that my conversion is genuine, is not primarily by looking back to when I was 10. You may have been converted when you were 10. That's not the primary way you're you're meant to get assurance because you can look back to a past experience that may have felt very real at the time. But if your life is characterized by the unrepentant sins on these lists, Paul says, do not be deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do, Do not be deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. The question is this. Today, when I hear his voice, do I harden my heart 
and say, I know, Lord, you don't want me living this way, but frankly, I'm going to take care of that later. Right now, I'm going to build a wall around this sin. I'm going to protect this sin. I'm going to coddle this sin. I'm going to take care of this sin. I'm going to try to domesticate this wild animal in my life. I'm going to try to keep it there in my home in such a way that I'm just going to let it live. I'm going to try to control it, but I'm not letting it go. I'm not going to kill this sin. I want this sin because I love this sin. Deep down, I wouldn't say it out loud. Deep down, I love this thing, and I don't want to give it up. I don't want to have it as an open hand. I am worshiping it deep down. And the Lord would say, listen, if you are not willing to open the hand and to release whatever it is that has that control, you should not have confidence about your salvation in Christ. The way we should have confidence of our salvation in Christ is what? I am today saying, Lord, I am flawed. I can think of ways in which I sinned in my attitude yesterday, okay? Lord, I I am not perfect, but Lord, I truly hate my sin. It is misery to me. I do not enjoy it. I do not love it. I sin sometimes. I fail sometimes, but my heart is not knit to my sins. I want help. Help me, Lord. Get rid of these sins. Please forgive me. Help me to follow you. I don't do it perfectly, but help me, Lord. Strengthen me to follow you. That is the sound of a Christian talking. The other is the sin of presumption. Well, I prayed the prayer. My, my parents were Christians. I grew up in the church. Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. It doesn't really matter how I live right now. I'll get serious about the Lord when I'm a little bit older. Right now, I'm just sowing my wild oats. I just want to have some fun. I want to have some time to just kind of enjoy myself. Paul would say, you should have no reason to believe that your faith in Christ is genuine if that is your attitude, this cavalier attitude towards sin. So what is genuine repentance? What is genuine repentance? Let, let, let me give a quick contrast here. In, at the time of Christ's death, all the disciples in different ways betrayed Him. Let's just mention the two famous ones, Peter's denial, which was horrific, and Judas's betrayal, which was even more horrific, okay? Judas and Peter heard all of Jesus' sermons, essentially. Judas and Peter both betrayed Jesus on the same night, right? That night, Judas experienced an ungodly repentance, an ungodly sorrow over sin that led to him going back to the temple, taking the blood money and saying, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. He threw the money back into the temple. By the way, Pharaoh also said, I've sinned in the middle of the plagues, and he was not a believer. He had not repented. He knew he had done something wrong. Judas knew he had done something wrong. His conscience was inflamed. He betrayed Jesus. He knew this was wicked, but he had no life. See, true godly repentance and sorrow for sin leads to life without regret, 2 Corinthians 7 says. It leads to life without regret, but worldly sorrow for sin leads to death, Paul wrote. And in Judas's case, that was literally true. He went out and committed suicide because he had no hope. He had no hope in the gospel. He was not truly repentant. He felt really bad for what he'd done, but he did not repent of his sin because the evidence of repentance is Peter showing back up, right, 40 days later at Pentecost saying, you guys have betrayed the Lord and you need to repent as well, just as I have done. Peter came back to the Lord and he repented of what had happened. Now, look with me here at verse 8 of chapter 3. This is a crucial sentence here. John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay. True repentance is not merely a one-time decision. True repentance is seen by the evidences of change in your life, and those evidence should be bearing fruit over the long haul. If you were to go outside 
And, well, you know, if someone were to give you a, a peach pit seed, you know, and you were to go outside and you were to bury that in your backyard, and you, you're convinced it's a peach pit, and it's, it's, over time it's growing up, and it turned to a tree, and one day it's producing uh, lovely and delicious red apples on the, on the tree branches. You go, okay, I thought I'd planted a peach tree, but apparently I was wrong. I think I'm mistaken what kind of seed it was, because why? The fruit is the proof of what kind of root and what kind of tree you have. And John would say, listen, Pharisees and Sadducees, you can say all you want about your religious observances. Down deep, what is your relationship with Jesus like? Do you love Him? Do you delight in Him? Do you hate Him? Are you bored with Him? How are you doing in relationship with the Messiah? And that will tell you a lot. And what kind of fruit is being produced over time out of a repentant heart? The proof is in the repentant life that comes as a result of conversion. You can look up later, John 15, 1 through 8, the, the, the vine and the branches. The true branches bear fruit and are pruned to bear more fruit, but those that don't bear fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire and burned, which is very similar to what John will say in just a moment. So, repentance involves this. Are you ready? This, this is just if you want to get a sense of what I mean here. Repentance involves this. Repentance means this. And has this happened? Is this part of your life? Number one, do you really believe that you personally deserve God's righteous wrath and judgment for your sin? Have you ever, I'm going to use the emotional language, have you ever felt the weight and ugliness of your personal sin and that if God were to let it go, it would drag you down to hell? Have you ever, I mean, my goodness, I've got all kinds of flaws in my life, but there have been enormous numbers of time in my Christian life where I have been almost overwhelmed by the weight of my sin, overwhelmed by the weight of my sin, thinking God would be truly just if He just let me go right now and let my sin drag me away and let me receive the punishment that I deserve. I just don't doubt that I really do deserve God's eternal wrath in hell. I actually believe that. Do you believe that? If you've never come to that place that you believe that you deserve God's judgment for your sin, I don't know that you can claim to be a believer. In fact, I think I can say confidently, you cannot be a Christian if you do not believe you deserve God's judgment. That's Christianity 101, is I deserve the death penalty for my sin. And that's, that's the beginning. And then here's the other part. The Lord Jesus took the death penalty in my place for my sin. He was beaten, bloodied, and bruised, abandoned by God the Father. God poured out His wrath and judgment on Christ so that I don't have to face it anymore. Jesus paid the penalty. It is paid in full. It is finished. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Even though I deserve God's wrath, His wrath has been extinguished. It is gone. Jesus has finished that job and paid it in full. And now my heart is so full, not every moment of every day, but as a consistent pattern, my heart is full of real joy in my salvation real delight in the person of Christ? Does that characterize our life? Not perfectly, but is there a genuine love and delight in Jesus? Not just a constant boredom with He and His Word. Is it, is it listen, we all battle to, to, to read the Bible and to really have our affections stirred as we read the Bible, but is it just always unenjoyable? Is reading this book always a numbing, unenjoyable experience. It's just always black marks on a page, or at least there are times where the Spirit breaks through and we get a sight of the glory and beauty of Jesus, and we are stirred by what we see and who He is and what He has done for us. These are all marks of repentance in Christ. Now, I must move on to the last point here. This is John's superior. This is Jesus Himself, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, 
John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fires. Sincerely, this is where people get embarrassed by the Bible. You're talking about Jesus coming and separates the wheat from the chaff, and Jesus personally is going to take the chaff, that's unbelievers, the presumptuous, and he's going to throw them into unquenchable fire. This is where you go, okay, do I really believe this? Do, do, Do I really believe that I deserve what John is describing here? I want to come to a close here in just a moment, but I'll mention a couple things about Christ. And I want to read a story for you. I heard someone called Jesus here, Jesus the Baptist, because Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit, and there's also fire in judgment. He's also the judge who does the separating of the true from the false, and Jesus himself is, of course, the Savior. Never forget Matthew one twenty one. you should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their Sin. So let me, let me close with an illustration. Some of you in Sunday school may have heard at least a shorter version of this uh, a few weeks ago. This is from the New York Prayer Revival of 1858. And just bear with me as I read an extended portion here. I, I, I think you'll find this helpful about what repentance and the transformation can look like in an individual person's story. It's a true story. Uh, listen to this individual. Listen about this individual. A young man of fashion and wealth and education of high social position in one of the fashionable avenues in this great city, found out in the progress of this revival that he was a sinner, and that he had a soul to be saved or lost. He felt himself on the verge of ruin and the brink of eternal despair. He was bowed down under the load of his sins as a grievous burden. Have you ever felt your sins to be a grievous burden? He sought relief and found it not. The requirements of the law stared him in the face, and he felt justly condemned. His heart was filled with sorrow. His countenance bore the marks of woe. One day, in one of our prayer meetings, that burdened young man found his burden removed. Faith in Christ sprang up in his soul, found his repentings kindled together. So he repented, felt himself the hope that makes a man not ashamed, and he realized that the Savior is precious to his soul. He believed that God, for Christ's sake, had forgiven his sins. He determined that he would never be ashamed of Christ. He would acknowledge and honor him everywhere. Now, the story's not over. Here's the next part of the story. The opportunity, the time and the place to be unashamed soon came. He was returning to his home that evening. Now, he said, I must honor God and obey God in my family. I must set up family worship. He had a wife and a sister living with him. Oh, no, said the tempter, not yet. Don't be in a hurry. Take time. Get a little stronger, and then you can go on and do better. He says, no, I must begin tonight. I do not know what my wife and sister will say, but it is a duty, and I am resolved to do it and trust God for the rest. I must pray in my family. Not tonight, said the tempter. You don't know how to pray. You have never prayed much. You are unacquainted with the language of prayer. Wait and learn how first. No, no, I must pray tonight. I will pray tonight. Get behind me, Satan. He passed into his dwelling and into his library, and there before God, his heavenly Father, And in the name of the Lord Jesus, he poured out his heart and asked for strength and grace from on high to assist him in this duty. When he met his wife that evening, she saw at once that a great change had taken place in him. And she saw it with awe, but said nothing. At length, he said, my dear wife, would you have any objections to our having family worship? 
After a moment's surprise and hesitation, she said with true politeness, certainly not, if it is your pleasure. Bring me a Bible then, please, and draw up under the gaslight, and let us read and pray. He read a chapter of Scripture, and then he knelt down, but his wife and sister sat upright in their seats, and he felt that he was alone on his knees. He lifted up his eyes to God and cried out in the bitterness of his soul, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And gathering strength, he went on in his prayer, pouring out his most earnest cries and supplication that God would have mercy on his beloved wife and sister. So earnest, so importunate was that prayer that God would show his converting grace and power on the spot that the heart of his wife was melted and overcome. And she slipped from her seat upon her knees beside him and putting her arms around his neck. Ere she was aware, she burst out into one agonizing cry to the Lord Jesus for mercy on her soul. And then her, her, the sister knelt down by the other side, and she too put her arms around him and burst into a flood of tears. He continued to pray. He devoted himself and those with him to God. He confessed and bewailed his and their manner of life hitherto. He pleaded the promises of God to all those that seek him. And with unspeakable joy, he made mention of the amazing grace of God in the pardon of his sins. And he besought that they, that they all might find and obtain together peace and forgiveness through a crucified Savior. Last part. The submission was complete. The surrender was fully made. Repentance and faith sprang up together in the hearts of all three. And as they rose from their knees, it was to acknowledge each to the other what new determinations and resolutions and consecration they each had made during the progress of that first prayer in the family in that parlor. Of all they were and all they would be or should be, to Christ. And then he says, since that first prayer in the parlor, God has been daily acknowledged in the same place by the same circle. Then out from that circle, they go from day in, from day to day in their walks of usefulness and in their errands of mercy to this great city, seeking out the perishing, 10,000 times happier than they ever were before. Now they scatter blessings all around them, and long as eternity endures, will they remember that first prayer meeting in the parlor. That is a powerful example of what a true conversion repentance can look like in our heart and life. If you have never experienced that, I would ask even now that you would ask the Lord and that you would turn right now from sin and trust in His finished work. Let's bow our heads. I'll give you 30 seconds or so to pray quietly, and then I will pray for us. Heavenly Father, I, I do ask that in the city and across our country and across the world, I pray, God, for those who presume, as I once did for 10 years of my life, presume upon a prayer I had prayed without any real repentance or change of heart and life and nature. I presumed upon a five-year-old prayer that I had prayed for, for years and thought that if I were to die and stand before you, that I would be safe, I would be fine because of that prayer I had prayed. I was guilty of the sin of presumption. I was not truly repentant. My nature had not been transformed. And yet, God, in your incredible kindness, you were patient with me through those 10 years of presumption. And finally, in 2003, you reached down in the midst of my sinful path and you turned me around. 
you gave me a new heart, a heart not of stone, but of flesh. You gave me new desires. You put your Holy Spirit within me. You gave me that incredible gift of a new nature. And although I have sinned thousands of times since that day, Lord, I am so grateful for what the work that you have done in my life and in the lives of so many in this room right now. Lord, for any who may be presuming upon your grace and your patience and your kindness without repenting, Lord, I pray that even now as we sing, that you would convict those hearts, reveal the truth, and that you would grant the gift of repentance and faith, that we would turn from sin and that we would turn to Christ as our Lord, Savior, and the treasure of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.